My name is Russell Stewart Brown. I'm probably not the Russell you're looking for, but I'm the one you've got right now. These are some things that I've learned. So I've learned that I think when it comes to some things, knowing a little bit about a lot can be useful. And for other things, like other things, you need to be very specific. But I think I think knowing just the tiniest bit of ancient Greek or Latin is very helpful. I think another thing about that is like it's more obvious, and I'm going to explain why I think those two are like helpful. But it's more obvious when you talk about something like Spanish and Portuguese, and when you can see that languages relate back on a like a family tree and that specific branches might not be able to converse, but they may have some comprehension of other branches. And it goes back to, to the roots and stuff. But when it comes to Greek and Latin, I think they're kind of useful because they're, they're such core points on those branches. I think so much of what we use in language today, like obviously comes from them, but like, I think it's more in insidious is too negative a word, but like, it's more, it's more ingrained than we expect. And I'll say, uh, I'll explain later on that, what my favorite current ancient Greek word in modern use is. But first I want to say why let's, let's just go with Greek for now. So, I mean, Y'all are going to know what phobias are and, and philias probably as well. But for, for the purposes of this discussion, I am going to define them in a narrower way just so that I can keep this like fairly like I, I just I think it'll dodge some of the more unwholesome things. But in the case of a phobia, we're going to say the phobia is a fear of something for now. For philia, we're going to say that is an obsession with something for now. And also we're going to say that asides, which dash I C I D E, that is the killing of things. And the reason why I think let's, let's like really easily like homicide is the killing of a person. Anglophilia or Anglophile is a lover of English culture. And Triskaidekaphobia is the fear of the number 13. Easy, right? So, but the thing that's really cool is that if you know those little bits, like those three, those are interchangeable. So, triskaidekaphilia is going to be the obsession with the number 13. So, like one of these people who like is always looking for that number, like the Jim Carrey 23 movie before it's, before it was adjusted for inflation, like people who are, oh, I can't, the number 13 is, is, Number 13 is scary, and, and they're obsessed with it. That's triskaidekaphilia. In the same way that, what was my middle one? Edophobia and ophelia. Oh, yeah, anglicide. Anglicide would be the killing, I believe, of either English people, the Anglo people, or I think there's a good chance as well, anglicide could be the killing of all people who speak English in that sense. And in that sense as well, an anglophobia would be a, 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 a sort of that fear of, of the British are coming. 
Yeah, I, I think actually that's probably a really good point that we hear about Anglophiles, like people who love British culture, but like the founding fathers of America, the original Anglophobes, you know? When Paul Revere was running through the streets of Boston and he was sh shouting, the English are coming, the English are coming, he was, he was essentially providing a content warning for any Anglophobes in the area. And honestly... Like, let's be honest. There, there's, there's a lot of rational reasons to be an Anglophobe. Okay, I know that a lot of, a lot of different countries took part in colonization, but it feels like the British really met at their brand. Like they were the ones who were most public about it. Because I think that's the other thing as well is that if you look at the map of Africa in say the 40s or the 30s. Before World War II, if you look at that map, it's it's kind of frightening because it's it's largely painted in four or five different colors at that point. You have this up the top left, right? So up the top left around where the Straits of Gibraltar are, you have uh, Morocco and that. So that's going to be Spanish territory up there. Uh, but only a thin sliver of that is going to be Spanish territory, and that's going to be swallowed up by a huge amount of, of French territory. It keeps going until you hit Libya, which in the 30s, I think, is Italian colonized. The Italian colonized it. And then you keep going across the top of North Africa, and you hit British territory, when you hit, I think I think it might be before you hit Egypt, but it may also just be right up at the border of Egypt. I'm not sure. There is a line there between the Italians and the British. And then when you sweep down, that's the British and the French just continue going down for the rest of the continent. And it's all done in one color. And I think that's the starkest example of colonization. When you look at that today and you see how many different people there are who are in charge of themselves or at least to some degree, are, are more in charge of themselves than they were. In the sense that they at least have a national identity. And a lot of them, I'm sure, are not in areas where... Like, I think a lot of those national identities... And I, I, I Listen, I'm a white guy. I, three minutes into the last one and I got into terrorism, three minutes in here I'm starting to complain about colonialism. That's wild. I mean, it's like... If I didn't call this things I've learned, it could be called virtues I'm signaling. You know what I mean? But look, either way, colonization played such a huge part in things like language. And that's why anglophobia is probably a justified point. But let's go back to the phobiophilia aside thing. Because there are some of those that are more fun. And honestly, I think the easiest way to do that is with the phobias. Because, like, I mean, let's be honest, right? I did not read the number or the word triskaidekaphobia there. Like, I, I know that that is the fear of the number 13. And I know that because it's such a great word. Like, triskaideka. I, I think I can understand how the Greeks put triskaideka into, I mean, tri, tris, tri, three, deca, ten. But, like, uh, there are a lot of phobias that I only know as the phobia, like coolrophobia. Coolrophobia is the fear of clowns. Which means that coolrophilia is an obsession with clowns. 
Coolrophilia is the kind of person who like hires a clown for for like no, they might say it's a birthday party, but like honestly, you get there, there's three or four people, and only one of them is excited to see the clown. That's what Coolrophilia is. Sorry, I think I misspoke there. But then when you have people who but then when you have people who are so coolrophobic that it's turned into a hatred and they've declared war on the concept of clowning and clownery, then they are committing coolrocide. And so that's the thing is that, like I said, there's a lot of like heavy topics when it comes to some of the other ones, but like with the phobias, because I think it's just everybody used to get that email. Like that, you know, that one email. Like, this is the thing. Before there was BuzzFeed, there was Cracked. Before there was Cracked, we still loved lists. Like, I I do not think there's very few things that are just so inherently appealing to us as lists. And I think that's because of the sense of completion that goes through it. But, you know, in BuzzFeed, it would have been... Here's 23 phobias you never knew existed. And then you'd have 23 tweets from people who have just discovered a phobia. And before that, it would be cracked. And they'd write an article about five phobias you didn't know existed and how they impact people's life. And so, like, cracked would have had that layer of, of, you know, it was was a comedy website, but it had a layer of journalism on it. And I I think that was, was what made it good was that it had a layer of journalism. It didn't try to be journalism. Because I think once you do that, then you are sort of accepting a new level of responsibility. But like it, it added enough to it that it wasn't just an aggregate. But either way, the, the, these kind of lists before cracked even did that. You would get lists in the email, and I think now it's known as old people internet, which you get these like copy pasted lists and forward, forward, re forward in the subject line and stuff. But, like, you get all these lists, and they'd be these phobias. And it's like, did you know there was a phobia for this, that, and the other? And they're all just sort of taken in from finding Greek root words and doing that. But I I learned at some point that they were interchangeable, and you could use one for the other. And and I enjoyed being able to say coolerocide. Because it's like, what does that mean? It's like, why? It's the killing of clowns. Didn't you know that? It's like, neither did I, to be fair. I didn't know it until I worked it out from the phobia. But you can work that the other way around, I guess. Because uh, a regicide, a regicide is the killing of a king, right? So I know that that's a little bit gender specific. And I'm I'm sure that there's a monarchy way of saying that. But like, I think that regiphobia then would be a good term to describe how people feel towards King Charles right now. Ah, they're very regiphobic towards him. And you know what? Now that I think about it, king and queen, I know that it's like, well, see, here's the thing. And now actually, yeah, this is probably a good point to leave the the phobias and the Greek behind because some, at some point there, I'm starting to make assumptions that are based on Latin. And the reason I know that is because Latin is what, was used after ancient Greek, I guess. And, you know, this is the crazy part. The phrase for the language of the day is lingua franca. And I'm almost certain, again, I know enough to know that I 
really don't know what I'm talking about for some of this, but I'm almost certain that lingua franca came from a, a, a time when French was that phrase. And I think the lingua franca of like an area is kind of like saying the, the language that most businesses conducted it. And in international finance and stuff, now that's English. But we still say lingua franca from another language, from another language. So I think that's pretty cool. I might come back to language, but we have some business to conduct as well. But one thing I'll mention is I said that my favorite word from ancient Greek is in modern parlance. And now that I've said that out loud again, I actually realized that I kind of have more opinions on this. And I think that might be the thing I learned next week. But what I will say is that the word helicopter is ancient Greek. And that is one of the more unbelievable statements I think I make on a regular basis. But it's funny because, and this is another thing I've learned about words, is that it's really interesting how words get split up or joined together in that respect. Because the, the, the word helicopter describes a spinning blade. And it comes from helico, which I think means either circle or spiral. I think it means spiral because helixes. But helico and tear with a silent P, right? And this is the part where people think, oh, you're making this up because tear comes from winged. And of course, the only word I can use to, to relate back to people is pterodactyl, which is a winged what, dactyl. And I'm not entirely sure what a dactyl is, but I know it's very closely related to a thesaurus. So it, it, in that sense, you know, like again, suffix, 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 in that sense, suffixes are very useful. And I think that neatly sums up the the whole conversation up till now and who knows maybe next time we'll go on to prefixes but honestly i think i have so many opinions about suffixes that i need to unload and i probably feel stronger about suffixes than i do about satellites and i think that's saying all right so we got some feedback from the first episode and what i have what I'm really appreciative here is that there were various questions and then like one email came in that asked, one email came in that asked all of them at once. And so for me, that's, that's the easiest one to go with. So I want to give a shout out to Haley, who's staying in the top floor of Hilbert's Grand Hotel. And Haley had some questions and I think they raised some questions with me. So we're going to go through them. The first one is... Haley was not aware that there was a difference between pool, billiards, and snooker. And now that I think about it, I never learned how to pronounce the last one. So I hope, I hope I'm not screwing this up, but I did briefly look into it and I was surprised at, again, how much I didn't know, especially about billiards. I thought billiards was a name for pool. I thought maybe it described a certain type of pool, but I've learned the some of the, some of the bigger differences, basically I learned enough to tell the three of them apart. 
And I think that's as far as I want to go. I want to be able to look at something and say what they're playing, but then we're done. And it's, it's way easier than you might think. So I'm going to describe the three and the big difference that in each case helps. So billiards itself is only played with three balls on the table. Now, the question then arises, well, how do you know that you're watching billiards and you're not watching uh, a game of pool or snooker that's just down to the last three balls? Billiards is usually played with no pockets. And I feel like that is the most easily identifiable, like, oh my God, okay. And I also wonder, like, I don't think I've ever seen a billiards table. Because I realize now that if I had seen a billiards table, I would have thought someone really screwed up with their pool table. Because it's like, what is this? This is the pool table with no pockets. Now I know that if I see a pool table with no pockets, it's a billiards table. And again, I didn't go into full detail, but the reason that it's playable with no pockets is billiards is more about bouncing the cue ball. Cue ball is a fun thing to try to say a lot. Billiards is more about bouncing the cue ball and like hitting your ball. And from what I understand, there's a ball you do want to hit, a ball you don't want to hit. But if you can hit them in certain ways, different combos, you score more points. And I guess then billiards as well, From just from that really quick reading, I'm thinking that billiards is the kind of game where not only are you taking your shot, you're really trying to make the next shot hard for the next. All right. So that's, that's billiards, three balls of different colors. And then I think the quickest way to explain pool or the quickest way to identify pool from snooker, say, if there's numbers, that's really it. There's going to be numbers on the balls in pool. Different games of pool will have different numbers, but essentially pool seems to be about potting a series of numbers. Usually one being solid color with a number and the other half being striped with a number. Each team gets one of those solids or stripes. You try to get all, all of them in, in ascending order. And after you've done that, you try to pot the black ball and first team to pot the black ball will win. But I'm going to bring that up again in a second. Finally, snooker. Snooker will be played with all solid color balls. Snooker will have no numbers, and snooker is about scoring points during breaks. I don't really know a lot about that, except there is a little part of my brain that wants to say that the maximum break in a game of snooker is 147 points. That's a really risky thing to say because I feel like I heard that years ago, decades ago, and it's probably off and like by a like significant number, but maybe only one digit. We were checking out. Either way, with Snooker, then yeah, you're, you're, Snooker's the one as well where they're constantly taking the balls out of the pocket again. I don't know if they take all the balls out every time they've been potted, but like there's different points for each ball and like it does like, Here's the thing, right? If you have only seen pool and then you watch snooker, it is the craziest thing, right? Because you're watching this game and you're thinking, okay, he's nailing all the reds, then all the yellows. And sorry, that made me think of something else. 
And so, yeah, you, when you watch a game of snooker, okay, he's nailing all the colors in, he's nailing all the colors in. And then this dude with like really nice gloves and a suit. So you definitely feel like he's part of the thing. He just comes out, takes the balls out of the pocket, puts them back on again. And like, if you didn't have the concept of snooker, that must look weird. Cause you, you gotta think that that guy's ruining it for everyone. I think that when I originally saw that happen, I get coming from the pool context. I thought that these people had made a mistake and he was like, no, that is, that is not to go in yet. Like I thought it was maybe like pot in the black early, but no, that's, uh, that's a quick thing. Sorry. The one thing there, I had a pause there, which made me think is that now that I think about it, the way pool is played casually in bars here is immediately a variant because like I said, it's like snooker. There's red balls and there's yellow balls. Uh, you pot all your reds or you pot all your yellows, depending on which team you are. And then you try to pot the black. However, over here, you really don't see the numbers very often. So maybe that's a European variation. Maybe it's an Irish like thing over here. Uh, of course, most Irish things, of course, a lot of Irish things come from British things originally. I, I hope that doesn't sound bad but it is categorically true and I'll defend it if I have to. But this is going to be the final thing that I learned today. And thank you again, Haley, for your email. The final thing that I've learned is that people don't like to be tricked. And I hate that because I think being tricked feels awesome. If it's a low pressure scenario, like if, if it's, I think it's how jokes work. I think it's, I mean, obviously it's how magic works. You know, I think there's, there's so much fun watching magician, even knowing that he has a method that he's doing this. It's like, yeah, but it's appearing to me as differently. And I think that one of my favorite areas of tricks are the kind of tricks that it's like, the way that they're always framed is, all right. So we're going to have a competition or I'm going to set you a task. And if you can't set the task or you can't win or whatever, that is this, that, and the other. If you can't do that, you buy me a drink. And so like, these are things where there's like usually a trick. Like I said, there's usually a gimmick. So it's like, oh, I'll drink two pint glasses before you can finish two shot glasses. But hey, let's make it fair. The rules are neither one of us can touch the other person's glasses. And you can't start drinking your two shot glasses until I've finished my first one and put it down. And then the trick is you finish your first pint glass and you put it down over one of the two shot glasses. And because of those rules, the other player with, he cannot, they cannot drink their shot glasses without touching your glass, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of them like that. And I really, really like them. And it's not that I'm looking to get a free drink from it. I just really like that, that moment where somebody signs up for something. Cause they're like, yeah, that's, that's easy. And then you give them a little bit more and they're like, yeah, there's, there's nothing problematic about that set of rules. And then boom, turns out it is, but this is the one time where I did accept a drink for what I think is a pub trick. And I'm sure that other people have done this and I'm nearly sure that I probably heard somebody do this, but this is the one time I won a bet in a bar and I got a pint. I'm really bad at pool. I don't enjoy playing it. And I don't like, I, like a lot of people like do it casually while they're drinking. 
I don't, I find it frustrating, right? And there was a time in my life where, I mean, that's the thing. I think everybody has a time in their life where there's a pool table around or a foosball table around and it just becomes the thing to do. And it might be while you're drinking, it usually often is. But like, if it's just where your group hangs out, it, it, it will become a thing. And I was getting my ass kicked in a game of pool in that setup, like I said, with the reds and the yellow. So whatever ball I was, I don't think I had sunk a single one. If I had, it was by accident. In fact, if I had sunk any of the balls, it would be more likely I had sunk the opposite teams and I'd lose a turn for that. Right. But at some point I look at it and I look up and I've got half a dozen balls on the table. And the other guys just got two. And I sat for a second looking at it from a certain angle, a very specific angle. I was looking at three, three of my color balls and the one white cue ball. And I think to really sell this, I may have even like drawn an imaginary triangle or something like that up in the air. You know what I mean? And I said it. And I started off with, hey, I hope you don't think I'm going to hustle you, but do you want to bet? And this is on, this is like, I mean, that is a hustle. This person has known me for a long time at this point. So like, they know, they know I'm not going to run away, but I think they are also prepared for me to have been lying about being bad the whole time. And so they say, okay, what's the bet? And I say, I bet that you don't, oh, I, I, put down your cue stick. And he did. And I said, I bet you a pint. You won't have to pick that up again between now and the end of the game. And I immediately looked down and I started, you know, like again, doing the, a beautiful mind to sort of Sherlock virtual uh, imaginary angles in my head and whatever. And he looks at it. I think he, I think he does do the one thing where he's like, even if this guy is hustling me, he is in a very difficult situation. So like it's doable by a pro, but I also gave him the out, which was not that I would win the game, right? It was just that he wasn't going to get another turn. I think he may have asked me to clarify it. And I said, yeah, yeah, you're not going to get another turn between now and then. Thinks about it for a second and he accepts the bet. I'm like, awesome. I then stand up from wherever I was bent over analyzing and I walk to another part of the table entirely because this whole time I've been making this big deal about like how difficult it's going to be to nail all these yellows in a row. No, I had a really easy shot with the black ball and in a game of pool, at least by these variants, you cannot pop the black ball before any of your other color balls. If you do, you immediately lose. So I take that shot. I pot the black ball way before I'm supposed to pot any of the balls. I look up, I say, game's over. I don't think you need to pick up your stick. He bought me a pint. That's good fun. I'm going to be honest. We're kind of hitting the edge here. So Haley, I'm going to come back to your email again for the next episode to address some of the other things. I want to thank everybody for coming along. I had a lot of fun doing this. I hope you did too. I mean, 
I hope you had fun listening to this. If you have any comments, critiques, feedback, or questions like Haley, find me. All right, guys. Thanks for coming. I'll catch you in the next cartoon. High fives all around.